And will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Advent is the season of waiting, our tradition tells us, but it's not the kind of waiting that happens in the doctor's waiting room. Don't grab a magazine, don't pull out your phone. This is Advent waiting. It's like children waiting for Christmas morning with anticipation and hope and imaginations of what is not yet but will be. It's like an expectant parent waiting on a birth, something which they have absolutely no control over. It's like waiting for the medicine to take effect. It's here, but it's not yet here. It's hoped for, it's anticipated, it is coming. It's almost here, and we sit somewhere between the already and the not yet. In Advent, we prepare ourselves for the coming of Christ into the world, knowing all too well that Christ has already come, born in that manger in Bethlehem millennia ago, but also that we wait for Christ to be born into the world again, every Advent and indeed every season and every day. Are we fools for waiting? Because if we're honest, Peace doesn't feel almost here, nor does hope most of the time. No, the things we truly are waiting for, peace, hope, justice, an end to hunger and violence, maybe these things are still a long way off, and we have a long time still left to wait. Well then, is our waiting foolish? Have you ever waited for a bus at a bus stop for so long that you thought, this bus is just not coming? And you know the people were walking by, shaking their heads, laughing at you, that fool who's waiting for that bus that won't come. Maybe that's what our Advent waiting is like. Foolish waiting that says you can't hear it coming and you're a little worried that your map is out of date. But maybe, if you squint your eyes just enough, you can see the glint of a headlight on a far-off horizon. There was nothing remarkable about Mildred Lisette Norman at first. She grew up on a poultry farm in Egg, Egg Harbor City, New Jersey, in the early 20th century. You'd never guess that at age 45, she'd give away all of her possessions, don a tunic emblazoned Peace Pilgrim, and walk the United States for the next 28 years preaching peace and nonviolence. During the early years of my life, I discovered that money-making was easy but not satisfying, Peace Pilgrim once explained. And one night in the late 1930s, out of a feeling of deep seeking for a meaningful way of life, she began walking through the woods. And after I had walked about all night, I came into a clearing, and the moonlight was shining down, and something just motivated me to speak, and I found myself saying, if you can use me for anything, please use me. Here I am, take all of me and use me as you will, I withhold nothing. P. 
Peace Pilgrim recalled, that night I experienced the complete willingness without any reservations whatsoever to give my life to something beyond myself. She set off on her pilgrimage at age 45 on New Year's Day, 1953, leaving from the Rose Parade in Pasadena. And Peace Pilgrim kept walking her talk for the next 28 years. Her vow, I shall remain a wanderer until mankind has learned the way of peace, walking until I'm given shelter and fasting until I'm given food. Peace Pilgrim acknowledged that some may have considered her kooky, but she once said, pioneers have always been looked upon as being a bit strange. No, waiting does not have to be passive. The time of waiting is also the time of preparing our hearts. This was the message John the Baptist was bringing to the world. John the Baptist was what we'd call a holy fool. He lived in the wilderness around the Dead Sea, subsisting on a starvation diet and wearing clothes that even goodwill would not handle. When he preached, it was fire and brimstone every time. The kingdom was coming all right, he said, but if you thought it was going to be streets flowing with milk and honey, you'd better think again. If you didn't shape up, God would give you the ax like the blighted elm tree and throw you into the incinerator with the chaff. Your only hope, he said, was to clean up your life as if your life depended on it, because it did, and then be baptized in a hurry as a sign that you had. It's Jesus who helped John the Baptist see that he's living in the already and the not yet. When John sends a message to Jesus asking, you are that one we've been waiting for, right? Jesus sends word back saying, you go tell John what you've seen around here. Tell him that there are people who have sold their seeing eye dogs and taken up bird watching. Tell him that there are people who've traded in aluminum walkers for hiking boots. Tell him that the down and out have turned into the up and coming, and a lot of deadbeats are living it up for the first time in their lives. For John the Baptist, and for the disciples, Jesus is the one they've been waiting for. And they've been waiting like fools for generations waiting upon the coming Messiah, the one who would come into this world and set everything right. Weeping and sighing will be no more. The predators who bared their teeth of military might and economic oppression for so long will lie down in peace. They will not hurt or destroy on all that holy mountain. They needed that Messiah. They needed the Messiah to show up ASAP because lives were on the line, as they had been for generations. This community, Jesus' community, living under the boot of Roman occupation, took comfort in the message of earlier prophets. Isaiah, a prophet, a fool for God, spoke this word of hope to a people struggling to pick up the pieces after the time of exile. According to these prophets, the one they were waiting for would come from a special lineage, descended, like King David before him, from the house of Jesse. 
But the image Isaiah uses here for the house of Jesse, it shows the house of Jesse being cut off. And yet, foolish as it is to believe, as preposterous and as impossible as it may sound, a sprout would come and grow out of that cut off stump and make the future possible. This is why the Gospel of Matthew begins not with an angelic vision or a star in the sky, but with a genealogy, a rather dry and dusty listing outlining Jesus' family tree. Now, any cursory examination of this long list of names reveals something pretty quickly. Jesus is being traced through his father's line until his father's line doesn't quite match up. And then Matthew switches. Not once, not twice, but three times from the patrilineal line to the matrilineal line, and then back again. So Matthew's genealogy is a, is a pretzel, twisting and turning over itself. And you might be asking, okay, so what? I mean, what does that really matter? One way to look at this is that Matthew was very interested in his readers seeing the story of Jesus, the figure of Jesus, as rooted in a long tradition. But another way to see it is that Matthew wanted to impart something more subversive. So he made the genealogy switch not only to women, but even to foreign women like Ruth, including everyone in Jesus' story, as if the gospel cannot be told just through patriarchal structures, nor through the lens of xenophobia. And these women, each in their own way an outcast, these women, despite the loathsome, corrupt systems that they were in, found a way to claim their voice and found enough power to survive, and not only survive, but pass on that lineage all the way to Jesus Christ. Truly, this idea that a shoot would come up from the stump of Jesse, that the lineage would survive famine and warfare, that's... That's just foolishness. For John the Baptist, for the disciples, Jesus is that one they've been waiting for, and they're waiting like fools. They're waiting like fools for God to be born into the world, to walk and talk and love and heal the world. They were fools while they were waiting, believing that God would deliver on God's promises. And now that Jesus is here, they're even bigger fools. Some give up their homes and their livelihoods to follow Jesus, working to build a community to share the good news of the gospel with a world not yet ready for it. What fools. And even more, these disciples come to believe in life after death, in resurrection after the cross. What foolishness. But the line between bravery and foolishness is razor thin. It's foolishness to think that a root would come for the, from the stump of Jesse, foolishness to wait on the promised one to deliver the world from injustice and sin. It's foolishness to believe in the possibility of peace, to hope in the resurrection and life and love beyond death. It is just the kind of foolishness we need. It is just the kind of faith that we need. For we find ourselves in the place between the already and the not yet, which, put another way, means 
We are right in the middle of the story. This place of waiting gives us the opportunity to cry out, God, I believe that you are coming, and God, I am so glad you are by my side, all in the same breath. I want faith like that now, foolish as it may seem. While we wait, we prepare the way. Our peace lies in something we cannot yet touch or see or hold or possess. And frankly, it lies in trusting in something that the world would think foolish. <coughs> For the world does not teach us about peace. It teaches us to win. It teaches us to conquer. It teaches us that the golden rule is he who has the gold makes the rule. But in here, the golden rule is love God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. But our peace is also found in the already. Peace, Jesus will teach us, is found by doing the things that make for peace. Peace comes to us in pieces and only with our participation. For we all are authors of the story of peace, told and retold, whenever we prepare room for Christ in our hearts. Amen.